Okay, let's go ahead and get our Bibles out and turn to the book of First Thessalonians. We're in chapter 5. Oh no, got to do something about that. Okay, uh, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to use the Black Pew Bible. We'll be on page 988. If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that Bible home and read it. Uh, Last week's text, which our brother Will preached so well, uh, was all about members of the church and how they should relate to and minister to the leaders in the church. They're supposed to know and esteem those who have leadership positions in the church. This week's text shifts from how members are supposed to relate to and minister to their leaders to how members are supposed to relate to and minister to one another in the life of the church. So, with that being said, let me just go ahead and read the text. It's just one verse, verse 14. We'll read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll just dive right in. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask that your word would uh, breathe life into our dry bones this morning. We ask that you would reanimate us, that you would encourage us and strengthen us for the task that you've called us to as a church. Father, we know that it's only through your word that we have any hope of being faithful to this great commission that you've called us to. So we pray, Lord, that you would uh, bless us substantially this morning as we look to you uh, as the source of life and truth and godliness and all good things. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This one verse is pretty remarkable. In this one verse, Paul manages to give us three categories of sheep in the life of the church that may need a little extra love and care and and attention of a specific variety. This list, of course, is not meant to be comprehensive. Paul doesn't intend to tell us about every kind of sheep in the church, but you'd be surprised at how much ground these three kinds of sheep in the church actually covers when you're trying to minister to one another. So Paul talks about the idle sheep, he talks about the faint-hearted sheep, and he talks about the weak sheep. Now on top of that, he helps us to see that each sheep requires a different kind of word ministry. The way that we minister to the idle sheep is not going to be the way that we minister to the faint-hearted sheep. You go up to the faint-hearted sheep and rebuke him, and he's only going to be further beat down. And you don't want to go up to the idle sheep and encourage him, because what he needs is to be admonished. Paul knows what all good parents know. You can't treat all kids in different situations the same way. So, simply put, different members struggling with different issues need to be loved and ministered to in different ways. So I've got four points for you this morning, super creative. You ready? It took me a long time to come up with this. Here they are. Point number one, admonish the idle. Point number two, encourage the faint-hearted. Note takers, you're supposed to be taking, okay, you guys are, okay, I'm tracking, all right. Number three, help the weak. Number four, be patient with them all. I thought of those in my sermon prep this week. Anyways, point number one. Admonish the idle. 
Uh, we already talked about the idle sheep back in chapter 4. If you don't remember, the idle sheep are those who are what we call lazy busybodies. Okay? These are the sheep in the life of the church who are so busy being involved in everyone else's affairs that they're not taking care of their own business. They're not handling their own stuff. Now, Paul says that we need to admonish these idle sheep. Admonish is not a word that we use very much in, in modern English, so let me give you a brief refresher. Admonish is like a mixture of warning and urging. It's kind of like repentance and faith, right? If you've been through a membership interview in this church, you know that when I ask you what your understanding of the gospel is and how you would share it with someone who's lost, I'm always looking for two things at the end of your gospel presentation, repentance and faith. But really, those two things are are one thing. They're kind of like opposite sides of the same coin, right? Repentance is when we turn away from our sin, But when we turn away from it, we're turning to something, or rather to someone. Well, who? We're turning to Christ in faith. So it's kind of the same thing. Well, when admonition, we have this warning. We're trying to call someone away from something that they're actively engaged in, and we're trying to call them to, urge them to something else, which is faithfulness, steadfastness, whatever the case may be. So to admonish is to warn about the danger ahead, and to urge someone to go in the opposite direction. And of course, all this has to be done in love. We've perhaps been members of church or had uh, members of a church where we've seen church members admonish people in a way that's not in love. It's more in the kind of like a, I gotcha, right? I'm not actually trying to warn you of a danger that your soul is in and encourage you to faithfulness. I just caught you breaking one of the rules and I want to be the first one to tell you that you're guilty. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about caring for those Uh, that we are members of the church with. You see this kind of language very much in our church covenant, right? We're not supposed to just care for one another. We're supposed to tenderly care for one another. We're not supposed to just admonish one another. We're supposed to admonish one another in love. You can see an example of this in Acts 20, where Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus, this church that he loves so much, like Thessalonica. And he says this, he says, For three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Those tears signify Paul is like a father to his children. I love you. I'm pleading with you. I'm doing this because I care, not because I want to be a disciplinarian. Okay, so why does the idle brother or sister need to be admonished? Why not encouraged? Why not helped? Well, simply put, because they're in sin. And on top of that, their sin is of a nature that is a unique threat to the peace and unity of the church. We've already talked about this at great length back in chapter 4, so I'm not going to preach that same sermon all over again here, but uh, just take my word for it, okay? As a pastor, I'm telling you that idle brothers and sisters, lazy busybodies in the life of the church, are a source of tremendous stress, heartburn, anguish. They are the ones who most quickly and easily lead to disunity and factions in the life of the church. They are a constant headache for pastors and members alike who are just trying their best to cling to each other and walk to heaven in one straight line. The idle brother does not need to be encouraged. He needs to be admonished. Now, it's important to remember here that being idle may not be a permanent characteristic of someone's character. You know, it may not be a permanent attribute. They may be just going through a season of idleness. If you're human, you should know what, I talk, what I'm talking about. 
Now, some of you type A personalities may not know what I'm talking about because you've never known a time where you didn't have every moment of every day planned out for maximal usefulness. But the vast majority, thanks, man, appreciate that. But the vast majority of us tend to slip into seasons of idleness where we care about the wrong things. We invest our time and our talent and treasure in these things over here, which are worthless, instead of investing them over here, which would be much more useful for eternity, right? Uh, I can just use myself as an example here, as a dummy to beat up on. Every now and then, believe it or not, even as a pastor, uh, I begin to slip on some of my responsibilities in the home, like you know, loving my wife as well as I should and, you know, discipling my children, doing things like family devotionals, you know, and every now and then Amber has to come along and admonish me, you know, and she doesn't say it in so many words, you know, she has the gift of gentleness, a gift that I hope to acquire one day, uh, but what she does is she'll come along and somehow, some way, she'll help me to see that I'm, I'm actually being idle, right? I'm, 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 I'm investing my time, my energy, all my emotions in these things over here, but like, what about our kids, right? You know, don't, don't forget about them. And you know what? Whenever she does that, it's always initially difficult for me to receive, you know? I always think I have a good reason why that's probably not true, or you just don't understand, or, well, let me explain, or let me justify myself. But with just a few moments, days, weeks, months, of reflection, I come to see that Amber is right, and that, uh, that I am being idle. And I'm always thankful that she loved me enough to come to me and to tell me the truth about myself. So, let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that one day you may need to be admonished because of idleness. You may begin to grow idle, wasting your time and your talent and your treasure on worthless things instead of taking care of the business that God has entrusted to you. If this happens, you should count it a tremendous blessing that God has so ordered the life of his people that he has designed it for you to be connected to other people who love you enough and care about you enough that they're willing to do something very difficult like come to you and tell you that you're being idle. That they love you enough to come to you and admonish you, to warn you, to urge you, to move in a different direction. This kind of ministry from other church members may be the very thing that God uses to move you out of that state of idleness into a state of productivity for the glory of his name. Now, before moving on to point two, I want to point out that this word admonish is the same word that Will talked about last week when he talked about how it's the responsibility of the leaders in the church to admonish the members of the church. Well, wouldn't you know in this morning's text that Paul says it's not just the leader's responsibility. He's talking to the members of the church in this section of the letter, and he's saying you must admonish one another. Uh, You can see that Paul is speaking to the whole church by looking at verse 27. Go to chapter 5, verse 27. Note the the, uh, emphasis that Paul places on this command. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. So this, this letter is not just to some bishop somewhere. This letter is going to probably be received by a pastor, but then that pastor would probably on a Sunday morning stand up and read it in its entirety to the entire congregation at Thessalonica. So this entire congregation is receiving this command from the Apostle Paul 
that they have to be willing to admonish one another in the life of the church. Notice Paul does not say, uh, if you see someone who's being idle, go and tell your pastor. Right? He's not saying, go get the professionals. No, he says, you admonish your brother or your sister. Now, obviously, circumstance and providence will determine who admonishes who and who sees idleness and who in the life of the church. What I'm not trying to get you to do this morning is to, like, become the church Gestapo, you know, roaming around, inspecting everybody's lives, looking for a, a hint of idleness that you can admonish them about. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. Listen, in the life of the church, everybody isn't going to know everybody. Uh, even in a church as small as ours, under 60 members, I still have members tell me, okay, now who are these people that are joining? I haven't seen them on a Sunday morning which is surprising considering how few people are here. But it's, it's a reality. Even in churches as small as ours, we can't all have completely meaningful relationships with every other member of the church. You're going to have your own little web of relationships in the life of the church. Your own little cliques, to be honest. Well, Shauna, should we have cliques in the church? I think it's unavoidable. The question is, is your clique going to be porous or not? Are you going to be the kind of people that kind of close yourselves off and don't let anybody else in? Or are you probably just going to gravitate to these kinds of people, but then be more than willing to receive other people into that circle. Okay, rabbit trail. Let me get back to it. Um, You're going to have your own web of relationships, and when you do, you should just be aware, be cognizant, recognize the fact that when you see things like this, uh, the first thing you shouldn't think is, oh, I'm going to go run and tell one of the elders. The first thing you should think is, oh, I I should love this brother, I should love this sister, and I should find a way to bring this up, you know? How am I going to do it? I don't know. God help me. Maybe go talk to an elder and ask for some help, some wisdom, some advice. But at the end of the day, remember, this is your ministry in the life of the church. Uh, Remember what Paul says in Romans 15, 14. Paul says to this church in Rome, he says, I myself am convinced that you yourselves... So he's saying, it's not just about me, the apostle. I'm convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. So if you're wondering, Sean, how on earth could I ever bring myself to usefully admonish someone that I see growing idle? Well, brother, sister, if you have the Holy Spirit living in you, then you are competent. If you're reading God's word, growing in grace, gathering with the saints, you are regularly being filled with knowledge and wisdom. That doesn't mean you're going to do it all right all the time. That doesn't mean you're not going to be nervous. It doesn't mean that conflict won't grow out of your attempt to try to minister to someone. But it does mean that God has equipped you to do the job that he has called you to do. Okay? Point number two. Encourage the faint-hearted. Encourage the faint-hearted. What does it mean to be faint-hearted? I asked my daughters that in our devotionals the other night. Kind of walk through, you know, somebody faints. Why? Because they're feeling weak. Greg Beal says it like this. He says, it means small of soul, which is kind of just a poetic way of saying uh, discouraged, low. When I read this text, the first person I thought about was Blaine. If anybody knows Blaine, you know he is very big of soul, okay? He is the opposite of discouraged. He's always happy. He's always resolute. He's always upbeat. You know, you just can't beat this guy down. And then 2020 came. At the beginning of 2020, Blaine had a series of unfortunate events. 
First, he had his car catch on fire in the middle of the road. Then the mechanic, uh, which was the result of a mechanic that had already taken a couple thousand bucks from him to fix his car. Then he lived in an apartment which was infested like the movie Arachnophobia with brown recluse spiders, which bit him. So they had to move out of their apartment. He also got furloughed during this time from his job due to COVID, but he didn't get his unemployment check, so he was having to eat through his savings account, which was hard-earned over many years. It took all that to get Blaine down. That's what I think about when I think about somebody who's faint-hearted. They're really going through it. Some Christians in Thessalonica were certainly faint-hearted for a number of different reasons. Let's just explore a couple of them. The first one could have been because of persecution, right? We know that they suffered persecution. Paul talks extensively throughout the first half of the letter about the affliction that the church is going through. Uh, I don't know how carefully you prayed along with Michael Wall's prayer, but when he prayed for our persecuted brothers and sisters, he really just walked you through what it must be like to be a persecuted Christian. Beatings, hostility, losing your job, having your church burned down. You just kind of go through the whole list. Uh, Michael prayed in some of those ways a more modernized version of what persecution looks like, but many of those same things would have been happening to these Christians in Thessalonica. How do you think you would feel as you try to cling to Christ in the midst of such circumstances? Maybe faint-hearted. Or Paul could be talking about, uh, probably both and, those Christians, if you remember, who grieve like those who have no hope, those who misunderstood the resurrection and were were concerned that maybe their friends or family members or fellow church members weren't going to be resurrected with Christ, and they were probably very discouraged, very low, very small of soul because of that. Now, let's think about some people in our own context. This is not anybody in our church. I'm just saying like a more modern context. Think about someone wrestling through a season of depression, which still happens even for Christians. Think about a husband who has perhaps been abandoned by his wife after an affair, and he's trying to figure out how to put the pieces of his faith back together. Think about a woman who has had a series of miscarriages. Think about a brother or a sister married to an unbeliever that makes their life incredibly difficult on a daily basis. Think about a brother going through a season of doubt. Maybe a sister struggling with assurance of salvation. Every time they sin, they just feel like hell is about to open up wide and swallow them whole. Each of these people could fall into the category of what Paul here calls faint-hearted. So, now we know what it means to be faint-hearted, let's talk about how to love the faint-hearted. Paul says that we need to encourage them. Well, how do we do that? How do we lift up the lowly? How do we strengthen those who are spiritually weak? How do we empower those who feel drained? Well, there are a lot of ways to do that, and to be honest with you, uh, I'm about to give you the most unhelpful answer first, and then try to make it more helpful. It really just depends on the situation. Wisdom will kind of dictate how you encourage each individual person as they're wrestling through these feelings of discouragement. So let me try to use the Thessalonians as a case study. Let's think about those Christians who were discouraged and faint-hearted because of their misunderstanding of the resurrection. They thought, oh no, you know, my aunt or my brother or my friend, you know, or my wife, they've died before the coming of Christ and they're going to stay in their graves. What are we going to do? How does Paul encourage them? Well, he comes and he teaches them right doctrine. 
They have, a, they have a misunderstanding of a certain doctrinal truth that has led them to discouragement. So he comes to fix that by teaching them a right understanding of a particular doctrinal truth. Now, what I don't want is for everyone here to walk away thinking, okay, the best way to encourage someone is to teach them doctrine. Okay? <laughs> don't be like Job's friends. But I am saying that it is sometimes the case that teaching people sound doctrine is exactly the right way to encourage them. What else? Well, sometimes the best thing you can do to encourage someone is to just sit with them and weep as they weep. Hold their hand. Maybe don't say or do anything at all. Just be there. Sometimes the best way that you can encourage someone is just to be present. And sometimes it's even best that you don't say anything, again, like Job's friends, because we all have a tendency to open our mouth and try to be helpful and then to completely ruin things <laughs> in our attempts to be helpful. Um, other times you can do things like point to the evidences of God's grace. Think about a brother or sister who's discouraged in their faith and they're doubting their assurance. Well, one of the best things you can do is just look at their life and point out all the evidences of God's grace that would lead them to have a stronger assurance of their own salvation. There's a bunch of different things that we can do to put wind in our brothers and sisters' sail. Sometimes we want to encourage the faint-hearted so much that we say and do things that are actually unhelpful. I'll give you an example. A pastor is preaching at a funeral. A young man took his own life. Before he died, he did not profess to be a Christian, didn't live in any way for Christ. But the pastor is there and he sees all these family members in the church crying over the coffin. And he tells everyone in the room that day, that they don't need to worry because they'll see their friend or family member one day soon. Okay, I know what he's trying to do, but that's not helpful. True encouragement has to flow from the truth. And we can all do things like that. We can all try to, in the moment, when our heart goes out to our brother or sister in the faith, when we see them suffering, our desire is so much to lift them up that sometimes we can say and do things that are probably left unsaid or not done. But that desire, that impulse to encourage is a good one, and we need as much of that in the life of the church as possible. We just have to make sure that it flows out of the truth. Uh, show of hands, really throw your hand up there because I'm interested to see. Uh, have you ever been to a church that has a prayer team? Throw your hand up if you've been to a church where they have a designated prayer team. Okay, hands down. I don't want to pick on your church that you're a member of, but surprise, surprise, Sean's not a big fan of the prayer team. There's a couple of different reasons why, but I'm going to give you the main one. Every member of the church should be on the prayer team. Every member of the church has the responsibility before God and to his fellow church members to be actively praying for their spiritual good. In the same way, Every member of the church is on the encouragement team. We should all be looking out for our fellow church members who may be struggling and suffering in some way, who may be small of soul, and finding ways actively to encourage them. This takes a real kind of intentionality on our part. This is like, you know, you have a conversation with someone and you start off by asking, hey, how are you doing? They go, oh, I'm okay. And you just not going, oh, okay, good, and then moving on. You stop and you go, oh, well, what do you mean, okay? Why not good? What's going on? How can I help? In our church, let me ask you this. Who do you think is probably in a little 
And it's probably in a place where they could use a little extra encouragement from you, the members. Right off the top of my head, I can think of two elderly members in our church who are struggling with cancer. On top of that, I can think of two other elderly members, one of whom has cancer, uh, who just feel like they can't be back at the church in light of COVID stuff, and they're just waiting for their time to get the vaccine. But man, they are struggling. They are tired of just sitting in their house and only leaving to get groceries. You could probably think of some other member in the life of the church that is small of soul because of some reason. Some of the reasons maybe that we listed out earlier. But Sean, that's what they have you for. That's what we have Grant for. Maybe one day that's what we'll have Will for. That's what the pastors are for. Just like admonishing the idol, the same thing is true of encouraging the faint-hearted. It's not just my job, although I do a lot of it. It's also your job. You are the ones who are supposed to encourage the faint-hearted that you know in the life of the church. If Grant and I are the only ones who are trying to encourage the faint-hearted among us, this church will be in a very sad state of affairs. So let me allow, uh, allow me once again to plug the importance of this membership directory. Uh, I want to exhort all the members of Sixth Avenue to take this directory and to put it wherever you're going to use it. For me, I put it in my Bible. And whenever I'm in here and I'm getting ready to open the text for the week uh, and study and prepare, I go through the membership directory and I, I pray for members. We used to have a member and an elder who would cut out the pictures from the membership directory and put them all in a bowl and they would put it on their uh, table and at breakfast in the morning, they would throw the ball around the table and whoever caught it would have to pull out one of the church members uh, with a picture in their name and they would pray something for them. That's the way that they did it. I don't care if you put it on your desk at work or if you put it in the visor of your car or if you put it on the front of the fridge. Just put it somewhere where you'll see it and be reminded to actually use it and pray for your brothers and sisters in the life of the church. Let me remind you guys that this is not a phone number and address directory. Although it is that, so when members text me and ask for people's phone number and addresses, I always give it to them, but I always really just want to say, go to your directory. This is what, but it's not just a directory. Look at we didn't put membership directory on the front of this. What did we put? Prayer guide. We, we, we did this. The main reason why we have this for you is so that you can use it to go through and, and think about the members of the church and how they may be doing and how you may be able to serve them. How are the Norton family doing? How is Cody Smith? How is Morgan Smith? Not married, by the way. How are the Stevensons doing? How can I be praying for them? Maybe I can reach out and text an email. Guys, I'm not recommending you guys to do anything that the elders in the church don't do. If you've ever sat in on an elders meeting, uh, some of the men in the church have, and uh, some of the women, uh, what we do is we just open this membership directory, and we go through, and we just pray from the first member all the way down to the last member. And then after we get through praying, we go back through and we talk about how each member of the church is doing and how we can be care caring for them. This is a tool that the leaders in the church use and we think it's very useful. That's why we encourage you to use it in the same way. All right. Point number three, help the weak. The third category of sheep, help the weak. Uh, if you read the commentators on this, on what it means to be weak here in this verse, the way Paul uses this phrase, uh, they disagree. Uh, I think for sure we can say that he's not talking about the spiritually weak because it seems like that's what he's talking about earlier when he talks about the discouraged or the faint-hearted. 
Uh, he could be talking about the physically weak, the ill, the infirmed. He could also be talking about those in the church with weak consciences. He talks about that and uses this phrase like that elsewhere in 1 Corinthians and Romans chapter 14. Right There he says, the brother who is weak in the faith, talking about their weak conscience regarding what meats to eat, what holidays to celebrate, so on and so forth. He could also be using weak as a euphemism for poor. He does that elsewhere. Listen to Acts 20. Paul talking about his own ministry. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Right? We work hard with our hands to acquire resources so that we can help the weak, and we remember the words of the Lord Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So one of the ways that Paul uses the word weak is to talk about those who are financially lacking or lacking in resources. So which one is it? Well, at the end of the day, I just don't think it matters. I think we should understand as Christians, as members of the local church, that anytime we are strong and we encounter a brother and sister or sister who is weak, it is incumbent upon us to help them in their weakness. So, if you're around a brother with a weak conscience, you who have a strong conscience should help that weak brother by not forcing your strong conscience on them. You think it's not a sin to drink beer. They think it is a sin. Or maybe they don't think it's a sin, but they just can't get out from under that you know, independent fundamentalist Baptist teaching that they were brought up on. So you guys go out and you hang and you have guys night out and you really want a beer, but you know your brother there has a weak conscience. You know what? You can help him by being strong and doing the most loving thing possible and not having your beer. If you know a brother or sister who's physically weak, who's ill, who's infirmed, you who have health should go out of your way to serve and to care for those who need to be served and cared for like that. If you know of a brother or sister who's having trouble financially, if they are economically weak, you who are economically strong, financially stable, if the Lord so leads, should find it in your heart to help them in their weakness, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus Christ that it's better to give than to receive. Listen to these words of the Apostle Paul from Romans 15. He says it better than I do. We who are strong, and by the way, that's, that's, that's not like in perpetuity, Right? It's not like, we the ones who are always and forever strong. It's like, no, those of us who, by God's grace, happen to be like strong right now, you know, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. And listen to the why. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul says that when we encounter weak sheep in the church, we should remember the gospel, which, tell, which tells us that God helped us in our weakness at his expense. And that is the reason why we then move out to help our brothers and sisters who may be in a state of weakness. Listen to Paul say it another way, 10 chapters earlier in the book of Romans. For while we were still weak, and this is the, the weakest kind of weakness there is, we were dead in our sin. He almost kind of undersells it a little bit, you know? 
For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is what the gospel demands of us, brothers and sisters. Jesus gave up his strength when we were weak in order to strengthen us. And now we are called to imitate Christ as we serve one another in the church. This is obviously a drastically different view of how to interact with the weak than you will find out there in the world. In the world, the weak are preyed upon, both, both intentionally and opportunistically. You know, according to the view of the world without Christ, nature is simply red in tooth and claw. And those who are weak get taken advantage of. That's just the way it works, survival of the fittest. Friends, that is not how we operate in the life of the church. In the life of the church, when we see someone who is weak, we don't prey on them. We intentionally and opportunistically go out of our way to serve them, to love them, to give of ourselves. Now, if you're here and you're a visitor this morning and you're not a Christian, I just want to ask you if you understand how weak you really are. Do you see yourself as weak? I remember before I became a Christian, I felt very strong, you know, standing there shaking my fist at the heavens. I felt like nobody could break me, nobody could take me down. But friends, if you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, I want you to know that one day Christ will come in the fullness of his strength and power, and on that day you will be found in a very weak state. And your only hope in that day is to not be found in your own strength, but to be found in the mighty fortress that is Jesus Christ and his righteousness. If you want to know more about that, come talk to me after the service. I have two more brief points of application before moving on to point four. And by two, I mean three, sorry. They're going to be super rapid fire. Number one, do not hold the weak among us in disdain. There may be a, a couple of reasons for this. Number one is you never know when you yourself may be the weak one, right? Oh, you feel strong now, don't you? Oh, that brother who's struggling with porn, you can't possibly imagine what it's like for him to go, how could he ever do that? How could he even think about letting himself go to sin like that? Be careful. It could be you. Financially, you're very stable. Things are going well. The business is prospering. You just got promoted. Your Roth IRA is, or whatever you have, uh, is doing fairly well. You, you know you're going to have your house paid off. You're probably going to invest in some real estate after that. Be careful. Remember that your control is an illusion. Remember that people lose their entire life savings all the time. If you feel strong now, praise God. That strength has been given to you by God. It's a gift. But carry that strength in such a way that remembers that you could lose it in an instant at the dictate of our sovereign God. Number two, embrace weakness. This is sub point two for you guys. They're taking notes. Embrace weakness. Uh, nothing special to say here, other than just to repeat what Paul says. Christ is made strong in our weakness, right? God looks incredibly strong when he's operating through us when we are incredibly weak. So embrace that. Point number three, subpoint number three. This could seem to contradict subpoint number two, but it doesn't. I'll explain how. Don't grow complacent in weakness. So here's the differentiation. If you are in a weak state, 
remembering that Christ is strong in your weakness is what prevents you from growing despondent, okay? But, but, if you are in a place of weakness and you don't have to remain there, you shouldn't remain there, right? We serve a God who not only helps us in our weakness, but also who promises to renew our strength, to reinvigorate us, to reanimate us with his life. That's why we do things like coming together and gathering as a church. The book of Hebrews tells us that when we come together, we stir up one another to love and to good works for the sake of perseverance, right? So like as you're living your life throughout the week, you're kind of getting a little weaker and a little weaker spiritually, probably, maybe. And then you come back and you gather with the saints and you get strengthened again. You feel like you're going to kick the back doors of the church open, run out into the streets and start evangelizing the whole world. That's by design. Listen to this promise from God in Isaiah 40 about the way he renews the strength of the weak. Oh, God, this is so good. He says, God does not grow faint or weary. So Isaiah, God, starts with himself. God says, listen, I don't grow weary. I know you're weary. I know you feel weak. I'm never weak. So pay attention. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. You know, these young guys who seem like they can just, you know, do it all, carry the whole world on the shoulders. They never get tired. God says, oh, but they do. They do get faint and they do grow weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord. So it's not just, you're not just meandering around. You're not just waiting, maybe some. No, you're waiting for the Lord, trusting that he will come and renew your strength. Those who wait for the Lord shall have their strength renewed. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. Notice the contrast. Lowly, on the ground, tired. Now you're lifted up on the wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not grow faint. Friends, when we are weak, it's an opportunity for Christ to shine. But Christ still shines when he reinvigorates us and gives us more strength for the task at hand. Amen? Point number four. Be patient with them all. Paul is such a pastor, you know? He's got such a pastor's heart. It's incredible. He says, okay, here are these three kinds of sheep, and here's how you're supposed to minister to them. But hey, I want you to know that regardless of who you're ministering to, you have to be patient with all of them. The word that Paul uses here for patience uh, is not the typical word that Paul uses when he's talking about patience elsewhere in the New Testament. Uh, this is a word that's probably better translated in English with the, with the phrase or the word long-suffering. Long-suffering. Let me give you a sort of a crude differentiation between the, these two, okay? Uh, patience is something that you need at a stoplight. You know, God. Why isn't this light changing? Everybody has that one light, you know, that one light. I got one that's like five blocks from my house. It's always when I'm in a rush, when I have somewhere to be, it just never changes. I need patience in that moment. Long-suffering is something that you need when you're walking with a brother or sister in Christ through a season of depression, a fight with sin, or a long battle with cancer. Uh, I especially like the English word long-suffering because I think it communicates the idea that we who minister, and that's all of us in the church, minister just means to serve, 
We who minister must suffer with those that we minister to. When you enter into a relationship where you minister to a brother or sister in Christ, you are going to suffer. Whether you're admonishing the idle, encouraging the faint-hearted, or trying to help the weak, you need to know that your ministry is going to cost you something. You do have to empty yourself in order to fill up other people. You have to die to yourself in order that other brothers and sisters in the church might live more robustly for Christ. You will have to give up some of your time, talent, treasure, energy, sleep, relational capital. The list could just keep going. Real ministry will always cost us something. I also appreciate this English word, long-suffering, because the phrase, or the, 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 the long there, it communicates this idea that ministry in the church, ministry to your brothers and sisters in Christ, discipleship relationships are more like braising meat than microwaving a hot pocket. Think about your own spiritual progress. Think about your sanctification. You guys with me? Everybody ready to think about themselves? Has your sanctification been more like a lightning bolt strike of spiritual epiphany and immediate transformation, and then like a rapid succession of these kind of experiences? Or has it been more long and drawn out than that? Has it been more like just a bunch of pulling teeth? Sometimes we do have lightning bolt epiphanies. And we do have immediate spiritual transformation. And, and praise God when that does happen. If you've heard my testimony, you know that's, that's my story. I, I went to bed one night one way, and I woke up the next day the other way. But even in my own life, somebody who has a testimony of immediate transformation, most of my growth in grace has been a long, painfully slow process. We have to remember, brothers and sisters, that the Holy Spirit has his own timing, and it's almost never the same as our timing. It's often much slower than what we would prefer. We have to remember the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. He says it so succinctly, so simply, so beautifully. Love is patient. Love is patient. In the same way that God has been infinitely patient with us, we must be infinitely patient with one another. We must suffer long with those that we minister to, whether they're weak or faint-hearted or whatever. We have to trust that the same God who saved our brothers and sisters will also sanctify them, conforming them to the image of his son and his own perfect timing. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the way that you have been so kind to us. Not just individually, but corporately. In the life of this church, Lord, we see that you have suffered long with us. You've endured our sins, our weaknesses, our times of discouragement and lowliness, and you have healed us. You have lifted us up. You have given us all that we need so that we can continue to be the people that you've called us to be at Sixth Avenue Community Church. Father God, we are desperate for your help. We know that we can only give out to our fellow brothers and sisters what we receive from you. So Father, we ask that you would give us more. Help us to not be complacent with what you've already given us, Lord. Help us to seek more and more of your grace. Minister to us, Lord. Fill us up with all of your goodness. 
We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.